All right. My name is Ben. If you don't know me, uh, one of the pastors here, Chris, is at a Texas pinball and gaming convention. I think that's the, the word. Uh, if you don't know, he has a couple side businesses, one where he flips uh, arcade games and pinball machines, and uh, the other where he helps people kind of mod those machines, so he does a lot of custom brass and chrome parts and things like that, and, uh, and so he is down in Texas hanging out with the pinball peeps and uh, doing quite well. I think he debuted like some cool, all like custom copper Frankenstein machine, and like no one had ever seen it, seen that modding them before, so people were freaking out. And it sounds very much Chris Royalty style. So um, anyway, uh, that's going good. That's why I get to preach to you this morning. He asked me a couple months ago if I'd do this. And um, man, I'm, I'm sure privileged too. So been looking forward to it. We're still in Mark. Uh, we recently began a series called The Servant King, where we're just as a church family stepping through uh, the gospel of Mark. And I want to remind you a couple things that uh, Chris may have said, but just it always helps me to, to hear context uh, you can go ahead and turn, by the way, to, to Mark chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, we've got ushers that would uh, gladly hand you one. Just kind of hold your hand up, and they'll, they'll hand you a copy of the Word. Uh, and in that Bible, it's going to be page 837. Uh, so if you need one, you can do that. You can also follow on the screens. But um, Mark is the shortest of the gospel accounts that we have. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is the shortest of those. It's only 16 chapters. And most scholars believe it was probably the first gospel count that was written. Um, so I, I could go way off on a tangent and, and geek out on this, but I, but I won't because uh, we don't have time for that. But I just got to read some about this this week. But um, the Mark that wrote this is the same John Mark that accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey and left halfway through. And the Bible doesn't tell us why he left. And then later when they went to go on the second missionary journey, um, you know, Barnabas went and take along Mark again, and Paul's like, no, I don't think that's wise. And so they actually split in ministry and, and went different ways, did different ministries as a result of that. Well, that's, that's this John Mark. Somewhere along the way later on, Paul mentions him, and they seem to be reconciled, which is super cool, because uh, God does that, because Paul mentions him in some of his epistles. But John Mark ended up, according to Christian tradition, being like Peter's right-hand man, uh, especially near the end of Peter's life. And so he heard Peter teach and preach and talk about Jesus a lot. He heard all the stories about Jesus. And near, either near the end of Peter's life or, or right after he passed away, Mark put all this together in probably the first written gospel account that we have. And so these are Peter's memoirs that we're, we're studying together. It was really cool, written by John Mark, who heard all the stories from Peter. And, and today we're in chapter 2. And, and the section that we're in is uh, it's the beginning of, of five short stories that Mark put to, puts together about the authority of Jesus. And, and Chris went over one of these stories uh, two weeks ago, and it's where the paralytic is lowered through the roof. You know, they tear away the roof. His, his buddies, they lower him down to Jesus. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees and Sadducees freak out. They're like, hey, no one can forgive sin uh, but God, and we don't think you're him. Um, and so they're freaking out that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And, he, and Jesus knows what they're thinking because Jesus can read minds. And so he says, hey, uh, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take of your pallet and, and walk. And he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take of your pallet and go home. And so the guy uh, who is paralyzed, 
We don't know if he had a broken back or we, we don't know what was going on. He is instantly healed at just the speaking of the word of Jesus, the authority of the words of Jesus. And he it rises up, takes up his pallet and goes home, sins forgiven and healed. And that's the first of our authority stories. And today we're going to see that, that Jesus has the authority to call to himself whom he wants to call to himself. And so let's go ahead and read that together. Mark chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 13. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, that he is Jesus. And he was teaching them. And as he, asked, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray again and ask God to help us. Uh, Jesus, I pray in the next few moments that you would just speak really clearly through your word to our hearts and um, that you'd help me not to misspeak and help, help it to just be really clear what these words mean and how they apply to us and, and help us to change as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to just point out three things in the text today that we're going to explore. The first is, is the type of people that Jesus calls. The second is the pattern of evangelism that Jesus employs. And the, the third is the need for grace that we all have. Okay, that's real simple in the text. That's what I want to talk about. So the, the first thing is the type of people that Jesus calls. And for us to really get at, I think, what's going on here, this was new to me as I studied this this week, um, but we need to learn a little bit more about Roman tax system at this time because Matthew was a... It, Levi, by the way, is Matthew. In the Bible, lots of times people have two names, Peter, Cephas, you know, the rock, you know that guy, Simon, Peter, multiple names. This is Levi slash Matthew, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And he was a tax collector. And the, at this time in the Roman Empire, there were basically two broad categories of taxes. Okay? The first uh, would be pretty familiar to us. It would be like general or stated taxes. These are ones that everybody paid. And so there was like an income tax for everybody. I think it was 1% at this time. You paid 1% of income to the Roman government. There was also a poll tax. So it was like a census tax. So when they came to get your information, you paid a tax. So imagine the census guy coming to your door going, I need all your information, and you owe me money. Um, they had to pay that. They also had like a land tax. And this was, um, this was over things that they produced. So if you had uh, wheat, if you grew wheat on your land, you would have to give a tenth of that wheat or the profit from that wheat to the Roman government. If you owned a vineyard and made wine, you'd have to give a fifth of the wine that you made or the profit from that wine to the Roman government. There was a oil tax. So if you grew um, olive trees and made olive oil, you'd have to give a fifth to the Roman government. If you were a fisherman, there was a fish tax and you had to pay a percentage of the fish that you caught to the Roman government. Um, these taxes were collected by Jewish councils and officials one time a year. They weren't a big deal. This wasn't the problem. It was the second type of tax that was the problem. 
In addition to these general or stated taxes, the second type of tax were like customs taxes, import-export taxes, toll booth taxes. They're kind of all that sort of thing. And rather than the Jewish councils and officials collecting these, the way that the Roman government collected these sorts of taxes is they would give the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. Okay? So what usually happened, and what was most likely the case in Matthew's circumstances, that he was part of a conglomerate or, or kind of an investment firm. And so there was probably several guys that got together, and they would make a bid to the Roman government. We will give you a million denarii for the opportunity to collect these poll taxes and these import-export duties and that sort of thing. And whoever the highest bidder was won. So if you're the highest bidder, million denarii was the best bid. Then the Roman government said, you have permission on our account, on our behalf, to collect taxes from people and basically in all these different ways. And there was a bunch of them. They could tax your horse for the amount of legs it had. They could, oh, you got four legs on that horse? That's going to be four taxes, you know. They could set up tax, they could set up like 10 toll booths. And I hate that when I go to Florida. I shouldn't have to pay a toll getting on and getting off the highway. That's ridiculous. It makes no logical sense whatsoever. Thank you very much, Florida. It was like that, but worse, you know. You like you might have to pay the toll like five times where you're on this road. And so they're cheating people. And here's the other really crazy thing is that if you won the right to be a tax collector for the Roman government, you had to pay what you told them you'd pay up front at the beginning of the year. So if you made your bid a million denarii and they said, that's good, that's the highest bid, then you paid the million denarii, you and your little conglomerate, you paid the million up front. And then you got the whole rest of the year to collect whatever you can collect and make back your thing. So if you made a bid of a million, you might try to collect two million so that you get to keep a million and, and Rome and you make back what you gave to Rome. So this made the situation rife for uh, lots of corruption. Um, here's what Kevin DeYoung said about tax collectors. Uh, there were many reasons that tax collectors were despised. They were despised because, well, no one likes paying taxes. Uh, also, uh, they were thought unclean because they had to interact with the Gentiles. Uh, they were despised because they were seen as being partners with the Roman Empire. These are Jewish guys that are tax collectors working for Rome. Um, you know, and Rome has invaded and taken over Israel. So you're, you know, you sided with the enemy. Um, uh, you were thought to be a sellout. Uh, most tax collectors were thieves and swindlers um, because they would set up multiple taxation points wherever they wanted. They could confiscate your goods if they wanted to. If you didn't declare them, um, they could make false accusations. They could threaten you. And they had the power to determine what things were worth. You got three fish. They go, I think that looks like $1,000 worth of fish. You're like, it's three fish. And they're like, that's right. And you owe me half. They could just do whatever they wanted. And there was not really a clear appeal process. So this was Israeli-type mafia going on. I mean, this is... That's who Matthew is. He's part of a group. It, we, we learn in the scriptures that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, so he was probably like the guy that was over the whole conglomerate. But Matthew is just one of the regular dudes. But he's most likely a wealthy man in bed with the Roman government, you know, and cheating people. 
He's the guy cheating the normal blue-collar people who are just trying to make it and pay their, make a living. And so Jesus walks by him, this hated man, he says, you, come follow me. And Matthew drops everything, which is amazing, and follows Jesus. And if, if I'm honest, um, I think we really like this, I, this type of Jesus, this picture of Jesus. This is 2018. It's not 30 years ago. We kind of like the idea that our Jesus is the Jesus that hangs out with sinners, don't we? I mean, we're, we're 24 church. You got tattoos? Oh, yeah, so do our pastors. Come on. You, know, you, you have a drinking problem? Yeah, a lot of our people used to have drinking problems. Come on, you're welcome. You don't like to dress up? We don't like to dress up either. Come on. I mean, we like this idea of this like Jesus friend of sinners, but, but I'm not sure that that's exactly we're getting how hated and despised this man was that Jesus called to himself. Like this, he, was, he was the the high school teacher that was selling drugs to kids, despised. You know, he, he was not somebody that anybody liked. We all love to hate Pharisees, but who are the people that we wouldn't be real happy if we were honest? We might not ever say it out loud, but like if we're just honest, like what's going in with our heart or what maybe we would say to our spouse like when we're off with just them in our house, like who are the people that we're not exactly happy that maybe they're in our midst or that Jesus might be calling them to himself? If our church was suddenly filled with like a lot of people of a different ethnicity, like, would you be okay with that? Would that make you really uncomfortable, and would you kind of wish they weren't here? It, if our church suddenly became filled with people who are of the opposite political viewpoint from you, and like, they're, Jesus hadn't, like they're not fixed yet. Like, and I'm not even saying you got to switch political parties if you follow Jesus. I'm, I'm saying it's all on the table regardless of what side you're on. But like, what if there were suddenly people who were very opposed to the views that you hold politically and, and they're in our midst and Jesus is calling them to himself? Like, would you be okay with that? Or would you wish they would just shut up and not come here and get on your page? If, if, we, if we started attracting lots of poor people, like really poor, and they're here, and not all of them had had a shower. And they were really needy. Like, they don't even know how to, like, interact socially the way that you want to. And so, like, you know, you got, like, the close talker thing going on. And, and so, like, they're close talking you, and they're, they're smelly, and they're, and they're really needy. And, and you really are just like, man, I just, I just want to get out of this conversation because this makes me uncomfortable. Like, are you, are you engaging them? Are you loving them the way that Jesus would love them? Or are you just kind of wishing that this wasn't happening? If we, if we started to have lots of people who are dealing with gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction, are, are we okay with that? Or are we really wishing that they would go somewhere else? I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus calls 
those people to himself. The people that a lot of people in society don't like. That's the type of person. The scripture says, um, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this list of like these sins and he says, some of you were this and you were this and you were this. He says, and he's talking about the Gentiles and he goes, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were cleansed, but you were changed, but you're now part of this church. We should expect that the kingdom of God, that the church of Jesus Christ is composed of a lot of like jacked up people who are jacked up in a lot of different areas and we should love the diversity of Christ followers that Jesus is building. Okay, that's the first point. Here's the second point. It, it, the pattern of evangelism that Jesus employs. Jesus ends up at a party with all that. He didn't just call Matthew. He then ends up at a, at a party with like all of Matthew's friends. So like a bunch of other tax collectors and, and the, the scripture just uses the basic word sinners. So we don't, we don't know who those people were, but you can, it might, it might've been the heavy that Matthew had employed to get his money when somebody didn't want to pay up. And it, it might've, it might've been the prostitute that one of his other buddies was sleeping with on the side, you know, and, and so she's kind of part of his group and part of his friend. And so she's there, you know, it might, might be a drug dealer might be might be whoever's despised you know they're they're all they're all here and 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 they're at the party and and jesus is is there i i again kevin DeYoung, who i listened to a sermon about the same passage put it this way he's like you know not saying anything necessarily bad about fraternities but you know he's like sometimes there's that fraternity with like the reputation and you just know like that's not a good place and and it would be really hard for a christ follower to be part of that fraternity and and he says, so you're out and you're, you're Christmas caroling with your group. And somebody says, we should go to the frat house and, and carol for them. And everybody's like, why are we going to do that? And, but you, you kind of feel guilty, so you go. And, and you, you go and you, you knock on the door of this very, um, you know, known for all the wrong reasons, fraternity house. And, and you knock on the door and Jesus answers the door. And he's there like hanging out. With them, he's not involved in the sin, but the sin's all around him, and he's he's with those people. I mean, would you for a second go like, wait, what is going on? Like, why are you? You shouldn't be here, Jesus. And and he's there. And so it's real easy for us to point the finger at the Pharisees and go, "You stuck up guys." But 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 would we have would we have the same reaction? if Jesus were in some situations. And I think we probably would, just given that he was hanging out with the people that we really don't like, the right, whoever that is, it might be different for all of us. We'd be like, Jesus, why are you with them? And Jesus is in the midst, and he's not preaching to them. I'm sure he was open to conversation. He's, he's not telling everybody how sinful they are. He's at the party. It says he's reclining at table with them, which is how they ate at a nice dinner party in those days. They would recline on one elbow, feet away from the table, low to the ground table, or, or mat sit out. And they're, they're just, they're having this elong, elongated dinner party. Probably multiple courses. And they're having conversation. And again, 
cultural distance. It's tough for us to get this, but here's, here's what one commentator says. He says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness towards anyone with whom one shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So this isn't just like, hey, we're eating some Chipotle real quick. This is like, it's a friendship dinner. It's elongated fellowship with one another. It, it's an important deal. Um, one author went so far as to say, like, who you ate with was theology in the first century. And Jesus is there. And, and it's kind of similar with us. Like, we might run into someone out and say hi. But for us to, like, invite people over for a dinner party at our house, like, they're usually close friends. And Jesus is at a dinner party with all these people. Um, and I think it was part of his evangelism strategy. The tax collectors weren't even an, allowed to go into the local synagogues. So even if they decided they wanted to turn over a new leaf, the, the message would have been, well, will you clean yourself up and, and do the stuff for a while, and then maybe eventually you'll be allowed in here. And, and that's not what happens. Jesus is out amongst people who don't yet know him with them. Not asking them to come to him, but he's going to them. Uh, and I think that was part of his evangelism strategy. And I think it should be part of our evangelism strategy. That we're looking for opportunities to be in the midst of unbelievers, not engaged in sin, not being foolish. You know, like if you're a former alcoholic, don't go hang out at the bar. Like be wise. But, but are we looking for opportunities to be around people who don't yet know Jesus and to be the good news people of God with them? Not having to preach at them, not treating, treating them like they're just a project. And the minute they don't accept the Romans road thing, like the first time we share it, we're like, all right, I'm out. I no longer love you. I no longer care for you. That's not what Jesus did. He just loved people, no strings attached. But he was also looking for them to come to know him eventually. But he's developing relationships with them. He's loving them. He's ending up in probably kind of awkward situations with them intentionally because he wants people to know who he is. And this reminds me a little bit, and I don't want to make myself the hero of this sermon at all, but it reminds me a little bit of an experience I had several years ago, and it's still ongoing. But a few of you that know my story know I was on staff here, and then we left to plant a church in East Nashville, and we did that for two and a half years, and then we ended up at another church plant in Madison, and, and, and then now we're back. And the church plant that we attempted to plant didn't make it, uh, but it was a great experience. It was a hard, great experience. But probably one of the coolest things that came out of that was, you know, we were, we're singing to do this, like, how can we get to know people we don't know who don't yet know Jesus so that they could, we develop a relationship with them, and they, they could come to know Jesus, perhaps. And, and we... We had this guy, Logan, not our worship leader, Logan, that you know, but different Logan, who visited our, our gathering one night, and um, we, found, we found out God had kind of been chasing him because he had tried to come once and gotten freaked out and, like, drove away. He drove into the parking lot, left, came back the next week, showed up, heard the sermon, um, 
said, Ben, I got a lot of questions. We met for coffee, got to share the gospel with him. He, he didn't come to faith um, completely. He didn't ever plug into our gathering, but we were friends, and, you know, God was doing stuff. And, and so I had a friendship with Logan, and then um, Logan worked at the print shop where we got a lot of our stuff printed, like our materials and stuff like that. And so that print shop, Jive Digital, uh, has these mixers a couple times a year where they invite a lot of their clients. Hey, why don't you come for drinks and hang out, which sounds kind of weird uh, if you're not extremely extroverted. Uh, but they do it, you know. And so Logan, I knew Logan was there, and he was working there. He said, hey, are you coming to the thing? And I was like, I was thinking about it, you know. And so that was all I needed to go. I need to be there. You know, so I show up at the mixer, and I'm extroverted-ish, uh, but I also don't do well if it's like small talk. I tell Megan this all the time. Like if we can't talk about something real, like I'm very uncomfortable. So I tend to like pull off into the corner and talk to like one person if I can do that. And if they won't engage with me in real conversation, I'm like, I hate you all. And I just want to leave. You know, that's kind of so this is this is awkward for me, you know, but I'm going because I'm like, I think God's opening the door. And so I'm going and, and I go and, and I'm hanging with Logan and, and it, you know, it's not too awkward and, and I'm, I'm okay. And, and Logan says, hey, have you met Gary? Gary's one of my, my friends. He also does some business with us and I didn't know Gary, but Gary and I hit it off talking about heavy metal. He's, he's a local, like independent record producer in East Nashville, not anybody you've ever heard of, but just local bands. And and so we start talking, uh, you know, about music a little bit. And it was bada-bing, bada-boom. I don't think I was there for maybe an hour. And then it, Gary's a better evangelist than I am, even though he doesn't know Jesus. So Gary reaches out to me on Facebook and says, Hey, man, this is one of the bands I was talking to you about. I think you'd dig them. Here, here's a download. You know, so he, it's, it's like this Swedish, sluggish, like heavy metal band. And it's pretty cool. And I'm like, Hey, man, thank you so much. And, and he's just genuinely nice guy. And I said, um, I said, hey, man, thanks so much for the music. He's like, I, I said, I don't know if Logan told you, but I'm, I'm a pastor, and we're attempting to start a new church in East Nashville, and, and I'd love to invite you sometime uh, to one of our gatherings uh, if you'd like to come. And he, he immediately was like, yeah, man, I don't really do church. It, it wasn't like he wasn't being offensive. He's just like, I don't, I don't really do that. And I was like, okay, no problem. And then he added, and I thought this was interesting. He just said, he said, actually, I've never been to church before in my life. And uh, I was like, oh, really? You know, and it came to found out later that uh, Gary's from upstate New York, living in East Nashville. His parents got married in a church. That was it. He'd never literally been to a church. He said his mom got mad at him when he didn't want to get married in church. And he was like, we've never gone, you know, <laughs> but like that was important, but they didn't do it, you know. So um, and. The, the next step in the story was I, I, we got invited. So this is another like, really awkward situation. Um, but it was like open door. Okay, we're walking through God. Uh, we get invited to a New Year's Day party at Gary's house. Like, and again, Gary's like the better evangelist than I am, but clearly God's doing something. So, so Gary invites us, says, hey, we're having a New Year's Day party, uh, like brunch. Like, just bring something and come hang out. And so I'm like, babe, we, we got to do this. And, um, and so we go, and we're at this house party with, like, all these, we don't know anybody. I, like, I've met Gary for all of 20 minutes. And I end up at this house party, and, and we're meeting all his friends, and, like, all his friends are, like, all from upstate New York. So there's this whole, like, little group of, like, upstate New York people living in East Nashville. And we're there, and we're just developing friendships. And to this day, like, Gary has not come to faith in Jesus. But we've gotten, I've gotten the chance to take our sons camping together. 
Um, I've been to multiple concerts with Gary. He's come over to parties at our house. He's coming to parties with our old church. Like, like we've engaged. They're not a project. They're, they're people that Jesus loves and that we want to see come to faith and that, and that we have shared the gospel with. And like, God opened that door. I've gotten to share the gospel with him, but he's not yet coming to faith. But I, I think that's what Jesus is aiming at and demonstrating for us in this story. And I long for the people of 24 to be those people. That, that our neighbors and our coworkers and and they're not projects. They're not notches on our belt. They're people that God loves, that he's intentionally putting us there to be salt and light to. And we're praying for him to move because the Holy Spirit's got to change hearts, but we're willing to boldly share the gospel when he does open the door. And we're, we're looking for the opportunity to do that. Here's the issue. Here's what Steve Timmons and Tim Chester say. They say one of the common assumptions when people fail to turn up at church is that we need to improve the experience of church gatherings. We need to improve the product. We need better music, more relevant sermons, multimedia presentations, or engaging dramas. Or we need to relocate to pubs and cafes or art centers. We need cool venues with cool people and cool music. The problem with this approach is the assumption that people will come to church if the product is better. To repeat what we've said before, 85 million Americans have no intention of attending a church service for any reason. And those figures are higher among young people. There are many people in this city, like God says in Acts, whom are God's people. And they don't yet know him. And the way they're going to be reached is the people of 24 Church being out in the midst of them in awkward situations, but taking the bold step to end up at the dinner party or to invite people to our dinner party, whom we're not great friends with yet. And we're inviting them to our table, to our fellowship, and we're developing relationships with with them. and, And we're looking for opportunities to not offensively, but kindly with honey, share our faith and and wait for the Holy Spirit to do stuff. Somehow Jesus was able to be around sinful people, not be engaged in the sin, and for them not to hate him immediately. He didn't come across as judgmental. He came across as a friend. And that gets complicated, and I don't know how to spell out all the if, ands, or buts that are going to happen in those situations. There's going to be some awkward ones. Remember when the prostitute lady came into the Pharisee's house and washed Jesus' feet with her hair? There was a sexual situation going on there. The tension in the room was thick. It was awkward. Jesus was in the middle of the awkwardness, loving that woman and seeking to engage with people who did not yet know who he was such that they would come to know him. That's the pattern of evangelism that we see in this passage. Somehow we've got to try not to be in the Christian bubble. We do have to flee from sin. We don't need to be idiots. We still have to figure out a way to engage with people that don't know Jesus. Here's what Kent Hughes says. He says, says, we come to Christ and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people like us. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we're with non-believers as little as possible. 
We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, a Sunday school that's 100% Christian, prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians and eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians. Even our dogs are Christian. That was a joke. The result is we pass by hundreds without ever noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. Somehow we've got to figure out how to intentionally be around people who don't yet follow Jesus and love them the way that Jesus loved them. We've got to figure out how to raise kids while protecting them, but not exclusively keeping them in the Christian bubble. Because what's going to happen when they go to college and you've never taken them around unbelievers, you've never... They've never engaged with people that believe differently with them. They don't know how to deal with it. And they freak out. And you're just trying to protect your kids. But you actually did the opposite of protecting them. And that's hard. Right? Like I'm, my oldest is six. I don't have it all figured out. A lot of you could teach me a whole lot. But I do think scripturally, we've got to figure out how to raise our kids to where they know how to live in this world and engage with people that don't yet know Jesus and be salt and light with them, to them, and not live in the bubble. The bubble is the most dangerous thing in the world. The Christian bubble leads more people, I'm convinced, away from Jesus than any, any good it ever does. Thirdly, is the grace that we all need. I want us to see in this passage the grace that we all need. When the Pharisees and Sadducees see this, they freak out. And I think some of us would have freaked out too, again, taking into account who Matthew was. And verse 17 says, in, uh, well, verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus gives a two-part answer. The first thing he says is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, says, this is common sense, guys. I'm a spiritual physician. I am the great physician. And these people are sick. And I'm here to do healing. I'm here to change lives. I'm here to forgive sins. Can you imagine, like you go to your doctor, and you're like, hey, doc, I have this thing going on with my throat. Can't get rid of it. I feel awful. I don't feel like I can breathe. It's been a month now. I can't get over it. And your doctor says, oh, oh, you're sick? Like, yeah, I don't see sick people. I only see well people. You're like, what? You're a doctor. It's like, yeah, I'm not that kind of doctor. You would either be offended or you would be hurt and be like, but Doc, but doc I'm, I'm sick. Like, I don't, I don't know how to get better. And Jesus says, I'm here for the people that don't know how to get better. I want people to be forgiven of sins. I want them to be healed. I want them to be part of the kingdom of God. That's what I came to do, guys. Why are you surprised that I'm with sinners? That's the first part of Jesus' answer. But the second part 
is irony. Don't miss this. Jesus says, by the way, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And what Jesus means by this is, is he's not saying, so, hey, Pharisees, you guys are okay. I didn't come for you because you're, you're good. I'm here for the sick people. No, what he's saying is, hey, do you realize that you're sick too? Because if you don't realize you're sick and need me, I can't help you. Because everybody's sick. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing, so I can't help you. Luke 18. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself would be exalted. We are all sick and all in need of grace. The prerequisite for getting grace is realizing you need grace. And there's some of us that don't realize we need grace. Maybe philosophically, Nathan was talking about this earlier. Maybe philosophically you realize your need for Jesus, but you don't feel it. And if that's the case, then maybe today your prayer just needs to be, God, would you help me to realize again and feel it deep down my deep need of you? Because I think I got this thing licked, and I don't. And I need to know that I don't have this thing licked. I need to know that I need your help. I need to know that, again, that I need, I need grace. That I, I can't raise my kids the way I ought to without your help. And I can't be the sort of husband or wife I need to be without your help. I can't engage my neighbors the way that they desperately need engaged with love the way that you did in this passage without your help. Like, I need, I need grace. I'm screwing up a lot. I need a lot of forgiveness and a lot of help and a lot of empowering by your spirit and, and, a, and, and, and a lot of grace. There's people in our church that I don't really like right now, and there's something between us, and I know I need to make it right, and I need to reconcile with them, but I don't want to do it. I need to change your heart. I need you to change my heart and give me your heart. I need to reconcile with them. I I need grace. I need help, and I know that you help people who need help, and so I'm asking for help, and I'm asking you to show me how much I need your help because I need your help, and I know that's true, but I don't feel it right now, so would you speak to my heart? Would you change my mind? Would you help me to feel and know what I know that I know that I need to know because I need help? And so there, there is grace. You are welcomed to the table of Jesus today, and there is grace for everybody who would ask for it. And that means if you're here in second service at 24 Church today and you know that you don't yet know Jesus, 
but you're not following him, then there is grace. He will forgive you for anything you've done and save you for your, from your sins if you'll cry out to him and, and ask him for help. And by, by the way, I just want to make this real crystal clear, crystal clear. Here's what following Jesus means. Here's what coming to him for the first time means. It doesn't mean you need to clean up your act and then come follow Jesus. But it does mean that you have to come to a point where you agree with God about your sin and say, I don't know how to change this sin. I don't know how to get it out of my life, but I agree with you that it is sin, and I want help. So I can't clean myself up, Jesus. I'm just agreeing with you right now that you're right, and I need help, and so I'm asking for help. Okay? So I'm not advocating sin. I'm not advocating that, like, just... Just everybody do whatever you want. Jesus loves you. That, that, like, it's true he loves you, but he does ask for us to agree that he's the judge and that he knows all things and that he gets to call sin what sin is and he gets to say what is not sin, what not sin is. And so we have to come to a place where we submit and we say, I agree with you about my sin and I need help. And so I'm crying out for grace today. That's what it would mean. And I'm hoping that there are some of you in this room today that maybe have never done that and when today for the very first time say, I need to call out with Jesus. And I do. My life is messed up. It is in a shambles and no one knows it, but I know it and I know I'm screwed up and I need help. And I need forgiveness. And I'm crying out to Jesus. And if you would do that today, he would save you. And he does all the heavy lifting. You don't have to do anything. Just agree with him and go. And so that's the invitation for you today. Will you follow Jesus for the first time? And for the rest of us, the invitation is to realize that that we can't do this thing on our own. If you've been trying to do the Christian life and haven't yet realized that it's impossible, let me tell you, it's impossible. Except that we've been given a Holy Spirit And he empowers us to do things we can't do. And we need to cry out for his help and for God's grace so that we can be the people of God on mission and love those around us. And so the invitation for the rest of us is to cry out for God's grace and realize our deep need of him today. Let's pray. Jesus, would you do heavy work? do heavy lifting in these next moments that I I can't do and I can't make happen and I need Holy Spirit I need you I want you to impact our hearts if there's somebody here who doesn't yet know you would you draw them to yourself God would you help us all to realize our deep need of you and would you help us to be a city on a hill salt and light in the midst of Pleasant View and, and Jolton and Ashton City and Springfield and Cheatham County and Robertson County and Nashville and wherever we may be coming from. God, would you, would you help this church? Would you help us to have a desire to engage with the people that no one else wants to engage with and to, and to love them with no strings attached, but to be praying that you would do heavy lifting and, and change hearts? God, would you, would you do that? Would you do that through our micro churches and, and do that through our Bible studies and do that do that through our deacons and do that through our pastors. Would you help this to be a hospital where we can all come to the feet of Jesus and be healed and know that everybody's invited to the party? All types of people. God, in the next few moments, help us to respond as you lead. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.